0: To the practice of theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The practice of theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today, we have the privilege to enter into a conversation with Dr. Denny Burke to discuss the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. Dr. Burke is professor of biblical studies and director of the Center for Gospel and Culture at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. Denny also serves as president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and as an associate pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church there in Louisville. Denny writes frequently on biblical and theological topics and is the author of a book on sexual ethics titled What is the Meaning of Sex and co-author of a book called Transforming Homosexuality. He has also published a commentary on the pastoral epistles in the ESV expository commentary series as well as a book on Greek grammar entitled Articular Infinitives in the Greek of the New Testament. He has written articles for a variety of academic journals, in addition to writing articles for outlets such as The Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, and Crossway. To find out more about Denny, you can check out his website at dennyburk.com and follow him on Twitter at Denny Burke. I'm glad to have Dr. Burke on the podcast today, and I trust this conversation will help you as you seek to understand what the Bible has to say about the roles of men and women. All right. Well, Dr. Burke, thanks uh, for being on the Practice of Theology podcast with us today to talk about an important topic, a biblical theology of manhood and womanhood.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so before we begin talking about the roles of men and women, uh, we do need to ask a few questions about what the Bible says about men and women definitionally. Uh, The first of those questions is this. Is there a clear gender distinction between
1: men and women? The short answer is yes. Uh, The longer answer, though, requires us to really think about what people mean today when they say gender. right? Because a lot of people are defining gender as a social role alone, and they're not really making a reference to the biological realities underlying uh, those social realities. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important for Christians to say when you look at Genesis chapter one and you read what it says there, it says that God made uh, male and female in his own image, in his own image he created them male and female and then he says um god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it Um, so he says male and female Mm. and then he says be fruitful and multiply right and so what you have a lot of people today will say regardless of whatever the bodily realities are just whatever Mm -hmm. you feel yourself to be is what Mm -hmm. you are that's not the way genesis talks about it um genesis defines male and female in terms of um, biological potentiality Mm all right so it's in other words male and female are the only two that can come together and be fruitful and multiply right so when you're finding the difference between male and female what we mean by that is the way that the body is ordered for reproduction Mm -hmm. and you have a male ordering and you have a female ordering and you have to have both of those come together to form a biological whole before you can have procreation. So talk about the difference between male and female. It's fundamentally a biological distinction. In modern categories, they use it to talk about a social role mm-hmm. that may or may not correspond right. to what's there biologically. So, a person can have a body that's biologically one thing, but they feel themselves to be something else. Right. And that's their gender identity. And it may not match their maleness or femaleness mm-hmm. biologically. Biblically, though, that's not how the Bible talks about the difference between male and female. Right. Fundamentally, it's a biological thing. And then the social manifestation of our biological sex. Uh, That's what gender is supposed to be. But uh, modern people kind of sever those two things.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so that's a helpful category to define clearly there. So here's a question, because like you're saying socially, we would, as a larger culture, say that those distinctions can actually be changeable. So does the Bible say that these gender distinctions are changeable, or are they unchangeable?
1: Well, you can't really have—there's really no such thing as a sex change. Right, right. Uh, You, a person can't change their sex. You can have a surgery Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where you surgically um, reshape your body to look like the other sex, but you don't ever actually become the other sex. Even if you take hormones. Uh, a male, a male can never be fertile as a female. Okay. And a female can never be fertile as a, a male. Right. Um, so the, the underlying biological realities don't change. If you're mm-hmm. born with X Y chromosomes, you're always going to have X Y chromosomes, right? If you're born with X X, you're always going to have XX. So those things don't change. So what you have with people, you know, doing sex change surgeries and all of that, what they're doing is they're really damaging their body, damaging healthy organs and, mm-hmm. What they're doing is to reshape the body to match their inner feelings, which they think doesn't match their body. And so, they try to make their body match their feelings rather than make their feelings match their body. Right, right.
0: Okay, so the Bible lays forth this distinction of gender. Are we to understand that to mean that there's also a distinction in value and worth if there's a distinction between men and women? Or is their dignity, worth, and value equal between the two sexes?
1: The Bible teaches that we have value and worth and dignity based on the fact that we're created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And so Genesis 1 you know, clearly teaches male and female are created in the image of God. Um, Some people have taught that the image of God is completed whenever a male and female come. That's not what we believe. We believe uh, what scripture teaches, which is that uh, male and female individually possess the image of God and therefore have equal value and dignity and work. And so that's why um, if you commit a crime against man. And and the same crime is committed against a female, you're gonna have the same punishment. It's not like one is more serious than the other, right? Because of the sex. Okay, we have equal value and worth. And um, so that's the way that Genesis approached this. Really, the whole Bible approaches this, right? Right.
0: Okay, that's really helpful, and I wanted to lay that groundwork as we kind of go into looking specifically at the roles of men and women. So, where do we begin in Scripture if we want to cultivate a correct view of manhood and womanhood?
1: Well, the very first place you have to go to is Genesis. Mm. So, when you're reading, even in the New Testament, meaning of manhood and womanhood is, what the meaning of marriage is, Um, when you look at the teaching of Paul, when you look at the teaching of Jesus, they always go back to Genesis one and Mm two. And the reason they do that is because that's where you have a man and a woman living together before there's any sin in the world. Right. So it's male and female perfection. And so the question is, what was it like when you had male and female perfection? Mm -hmm. You had one man, one woman coming together into a biological unity so that they can be fruitful and multiply, Genesis chapter Mm 1. But then Genesis chapter 2, you begin to see that God has these social roles prescribed for the man and the woman. And even though they're equally created in the image of God, they do have different assignments, Mm. right? So, they're they're created equally in the image of God. They're both given the responsibility in Genesis chapter 1 to rule over creation together. But then when you get into Genesis chapter two, it's clear that the differences that you see don't mean that they're unequal. It just means that they're, they're, they're different. Right. So before the woman's even there, the man is called to cultivate and to keep the garden, Mm. which means he's going to be working the garden. He's going to be guarding the garden. Right. So um, he is going to be providing protection. Mm -hmm. Then the woman comes in and it says that she is going to be a helper to the man. She corresponds to the man. She's not, the same as the man, but she fits together with the man. Right. And uh, she's called a helper who corresponds to him. And so the helper relationship in Genesis 2 is one where you've got a person who's working alongside another person towards a common task of subduing creation, but she's also going to be following his lead. Leadership, and so the the man's main role with respect to his wife in Genesis two is leadership, protection, and provision. Those three things. Right. He's providing leadership, protection, and provision, and then the woman is coming in um, beside him in this first marriage, and she is, uh, um, she's following that leadership. She is a participant in that protection and provision. And she is working together with him to be fruitful and multiply mm-hmm. and to, to subdue the earth. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, all of that perfection gets um, interrupted in chapter three, where you've got the serpent come into the garden and deceives the woman and all right. the rest. But but the original creation, when everything was good, everything was perfect, everything was right, you had two a man, two people, a man and a woman, equally created in the image of God, mm-hmm. equal value and dignity, but different assignments uh, within that first marriage. Right. So, that's your your foundational text. And so, when you go back into the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus, and Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to ask Jesus about the nature of marriage with a question on divorce, and Jesus says, have you not read, from the right. beginning, God made them male and female, right. he's quoting Genesis 1, and the two shall become one flesh, there Jesus is quoting Genesis 2. So. When Jesus is explaining the innermost meaning of that relationship, that first male-female covenant relationship, he goes to Genesis one and two, mm-hmm. where you had perfection and no sin. Right. Right.
0: You hinted at this uh next question there for for just a brief moment. But why is a conversation like this even necessary? Why why is there so much confusion and rebellion against what the Bible has to say on these matters?
1: Well, you've had I mean it's a long intellectual winding story here mm-hmm. but if we shortened it we could just say that in the 20th century you begin to see real pressure in the west on the idea of um, male leadership and you begin to see um, feminism begin to um, catch on mm-hmm. there was a first wave a second wave and a third wave arguably early waves of feminism were basically about you know getting suffrage for women and some things that were unobjectionable. But in the second and third waves, you begin to have revisions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, right. especially in the social roles that we all inhabit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, uh, the feminists were basically saying their diagnosis of what was wrong with the world was what they called patriarchy, right. and patriarchy is this idea that anytime you have a man in leadership, it's always abusive and wrong. Now, the feminists are right to look at the history of the world and to notice, oh, you know what? There have been abusive men.
0: All right. So that's that's a helpful clarification. So here's one of the questions as we make our way through the Bible. When we enter into the Old Testament, does the Old Testament establish and advocate for a patriarchal model of the family? And of course, this is definitely somewhat of a loaded question, and that's going to likely depend on our definition of patriarchy.
1: Yeah. So the, the tough thing here is that the Bible does use the term patriarch and the word patriarch, all it means is the rule of the father. Mm-hmm. And it just reflects the fact that in, you know, in these ancient near Eastern civilizations, the families were ruled by the, the fathers that were, they were the heads of the, fa- of the family. Right. Um, that, but, and, and then when you talk about the, when the Bible uses, like the new Testament uses the term patriarch, it's mm-hmm. referring to the heads of the families like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. It's usually referring to those the 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 foundational head. Right, right. Okay. Patriarchy's modern uh definition was one that was coined by feminists. Mm-hmm. And what they argue patriarchy is is always the oppressive rule of men over right. women. Right. And that every re- every relationship between male and female is is one of, you know, oppression and you know, unequal power. Mm -hmm. And so anytime you have unequal power with a man having more power than a woman, you have patriarchy and it's always evil. So you don't want to confuse like the biblical language that refers to patriarchs with what feminists are saying about patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally don't use the term patriarchy to describe what my view is because the way that that feminists have redefined that that term with such negative... Uh, connotations and denotations, right? That's why it, I think it's better to describe the biblical view with a term like complementarianism because mm-hmm. it emphasizes the complementarity between male and female. Um, they're both equal, but they also have important differences in different assignments in the calling that God has right. given them over their lives. Right.
0: Uh, well and by the time we get into the New Testament in particular as you see the life of the church being founded and taking off there there's a clear distinction that's drawn between the roles of men and women both in the family and in the local church why is this the case these these very clear distinction roles that you see in the New Testament in particular with Paul and Peter for instance
1: yeah well if you if you look I'll just open up mm-hmm. to Ephesians chapter 5 because Paul explains you know why things are the way that they are so he says to his wives be subject to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body and so he's saying that wives are supposed to be subject to their own husbands not to every man right okay and the command is not, not all women submit to all men okay the headship relationship is a, is a relationship that belongs to the covenant of marriage right and so, um, so he's saying, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife. Mm-hmm. And so God has assigned this role of headship to the man, which means leadership and authority in the marriage relationship. And the woman is supposed to come alongside and support that leadership and authority. And then, and so the wife is supposed to be subject. And then it says to husbands, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right. So the wives are supposed to follow leadership of their husbands. Husbands are supposed to love their wives and love them self-sacrificially, to to love them just like Christ loved the church, right. which means a man's headship doesn't exist so that he can put his needs and wants in front of everybody else's that That's he's right. in charge of. Right. That's not what it's for. It's there for you to pour out your life for them and to sacrifice for them. But then he explains why later on in Ephesians five, he says, because we are members of his body Mm -hmm. for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so Paul's quoting Genesis there, right? He's saying the reason for these different roles between male and female within the marriage relationship is because of what God established in Genesis, right? The reason that we have marriage, uh, that we have marriage as we know it today, is because of what happened in Genesis. And then Paul says this, and this is the key thing that answers your question. He says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church, which means the whole reason for that first marriage and every marriage after Adam and Eve's, to your marriage, to my marriage, the whole mm. reason for all of those marriages was always to display this mystery. right? And uh, to display this mystery, and, and Paul says the mystery is about Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. Meaning of marriage is to display to the world the way that Christ relates to his bride. Right. Marriages are supposed to show what the gospel is to people. Husbands are supposed to be modeling to the world the way Jesus loves the church by the way they love their brides. Right, And so it's this little enacted parable of, of the gospel. So marriage exists in the world for a larger cosmic purpose to show the way that Christ loves his own bride. So what that means is that the different callings that God puts on a male and a female within that marriage relationship, it's not arbitrary. right? It's there with a divine purpose. It's there with a divine design and ultimately to point to the gospel and to the glory of God. Yeah, right. Right. Amen. Amen.
0: Okay, so is the New Testament then teaching us something new as it relates to manhood and womanhood, or, or is this really just the pattern of, of all of Scripture?
1: Yeah, it, no, it's not teaching us anything new. It, it's, it's rooted in the original creation design of Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. Now, what you find in the pages of Scripture are a lot of examples of men and women blowing it right on what they're called to do. So, we live in a Genesis 3 world where men and women aren't perfect. And where they're quite sinful and quite selfish, right? And you've got men abusing their headship, and you've got women, um, you know, not supporting headship in different ways. And you've you've basically got examples throughout the Bible of people blowing it in right. in all of these areas. But the New Testament's not rooted in the fallenness of creation, but in the original creation, right. Genesis one and two. Right. Yeah.
0: That's that's helpful. And uh, the reason I ask is because I think a lot of times there's there's a false dichotomy between. Well, the New Testament has a new and better way, and the Old Testament, it is patriarchal and oppressive. And while, yes, of course, there are instances where uh, men and both women have sinfully betrayed what God has called them to do, uh, there is no distinction between the old and the new in, in this realm as it relates to men and women and the roles that they have been called to.
1: Right. That's right. Okay, so what
0: are the major views on the roles of men and women within the church specifically? And and maybe you need to draw on the larger society if you need to, but thinking about the church specifically, what are the the major views of gender roles?
1: When it comes to evangelicals, if I can just narrow the conversation a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, when I say evangelicals, I mean people that profess to believe in the authority of Scripture to take the Bible seriously. Right. Um, you have two major points of view on this. You have what's called complementarianism, which I already mentioned, mm-hmm. and then egalitarianism. Egalitarianism believes um, that it they agree with complementarians that men and women are created equally in the image of God. Right. So complementarians and egalitarians agree about that. Um, where they differ is whether or not God has different callings on men and women's lives based on the fact that they're a male and a female. Right. Complimentarians say, yeah, we do have different callings. That's what scripture seems to indicate. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Egalitarians say no. Um, Egalitarians say there's no difference in calling. Um, There's no no head or leader in the marriage relationship. Um, And when it comes to leadership in the church, Mm -hmm. there's definitely nothing in the Bible about um, qualified men being the only legitimate pastors. Right. Um, men and women are just interchangeable in ministry whoever leadership is kind of for, for egalitarian leadership is kind of like a, a jump ball in right. basketball um uh in other words you you know the referee comes out and he puts the ball in between the two players and whoever can jump higher and faster they get possession of the ball right mm-hmm. what i believe is a complementarian the bible teaches is that um, it's, it's not leadership side not jump ball. It's an inbound pass. The referee assigns possession before the ball is put into play. That's what leadership is like. Yeah. God has already assigned leadership to men by virtue of the fact that they're men. And that has implications for the different relationships that they're in. Now it's not every man as a, the head of every woman, but it is every husband, the head of his own wife, right? It is, you know, within the church, God's calling qualified men to be pastors Women are called into ministry and have important ministries that God calls them to, but men are going to be the pastors and do the teaching and preaching within the gathered assembly. So different assignments, all for the same ultimate work, mm-hmm. but differences in, in in assignment. And the Galatians don't recognize that. They would say, "No, everything's." Interchangeable. Right. And if you're gifted for something, then whatever. So men and women are completely equal in every respect with no differences. Right. Right.
0: Okay. So help us kind of flesh that out, thinking through um, how men and women complement one another. And so, how exactly, and let's just go ahead and limit it back to a, a church, an evangelical church. How are men and women complementing one another in that setting?
1: Yeah. Well, complementarity, that the thing you have to keep in mind, complementarity is a is an idea that's rooted in the text of Genesis 2. Mm-hmm. Because when God sees Adam, he's alone. He says, I'm going to make a helper. And then some of the translations say suitable right. for him. But it's this Hebrew phrase, um, which means something like corresponding to him. Mm. You could even say complimenting him, mm-hmm. not compliment. Like I'm giving you a compliment, right. but like complimentary, but, yep. um, it, so in other words, there's, there's differences, but there's sameness. Uh-huh. And, you know, when, so, so God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. He then creates all these animals and Adam names all the animals, but it says, you know, for Adam, it says there was no suitable, suitable helper yeah. found for him. You know, there wasn't one that fit him. Um, they were all different than him, but that sameness wasn't there, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't humans. <laughs> and so God makes this woman and then. Then Adam says, she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Right. She shall be called woman. So, in other words, there was a biological complementarity that was obvious that entailed how they were going to have a social complementarity in the first marriage. He would be the leader. She would be the follower. All of that is connected to the the biological realities. So, so I just want to say complementarity is something that is foremost about marriage because the covenant of marriage is ordered in a certain way the covenant family the the covenant community of the church is also going to reflect that headship norm to a certain extent right so again it's not that every man is the head over every woman in the church but it does mean that the the leadership in the church is not going to undermine leadership structure that's in the home that's right so god is going to give qualified male pastors to lead the church and he's not going to set up a situation where you would have women potentially commanding their husbands from the pulpit right that would would put a total strain on the on the family relationship if if you did that so that's why you have male leadership within the church however everybody in the church is gifted everybody in the church is called to ministry but not everybody in the church is called to be you know, to be pastors, right? Right, And so what you want to see in a church is everybody doing their part and every um, part of um, the body um, exercising faithful ministry. That means both men and women. So women are called ministers and you have male and female ministers Mm -hmm. in the new Testament. Mm -hmm. That's not a synonym for pastor. It just means people who are performing some ministry within the body of Christ for the good and the edification for the body of Christ. And so, um, one thing that you want to see in a church is that, you know, everybody is encouraged to see those gifts and to deploy those gifts for the good of the body of Christ, male or female. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. So no, that, that's really helpful. Okay. So now what I want to ask you, um, just straightforwardly, there's been an accusation and, and it's, Probably not really a new one, but recently there's been an accusation made that complementarianism is a man-made doctrine that stems from basically just a specific cultural moment that no longer exists. Is is this a proper way to understand complementarianism? The answer, based on everything you've already said, is obviously no, but why is that a misunderstanding of complementarianism?
1: Yeah, I mean, the answer is no. As I've already tried to show you, mm-hmm. we're rooting our beliefs on this in what the Bible teaches. Right. So... Um, it's not, you know, headship is not something that was invented in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. This is something that is inscribed in Moses' words, <laughs> right. you know, that God gave right. to Moses at Sinai. So uh, this is what Jesus and Paul and the apostles, this is what they were all um, affirming is what was in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not a man-made doctrine. It's a God-designed doctrine. But the reason that so, so many people we we'll sometimes say it's a man-made doctrine is because just like with any biblical teaching, you can have distortions of it and you can have um, things that come into the teaching that aren't really a part of the biblical norm. Right. And so I'll hear people talking about, well, you're just for sort of uh, masculine types that are, you know, popular in your 21st century Western culture. And you're just trying to embed these, you know, maybe more traditional stereotypes, mm-hmm. but they're not really biblical. And, to that, I want to say, you know, there can be really unhelpful things from the culture that have nothing to do with the scripture that are called manhood or that are called womanhood. Right? Um, and I think it's our job just to say, look, we need to separate the wheat from the chaff here. Yep. And if there's something that's an unbiblical stereotype, then we don't need to put that out there as if it's, you know, the, the gospel, because it's not. We need to understand what the Bible says about manhood. I mean, the Bible doesn't say manhood means you like football. Okay. That's, a, that's a stereotype. Right, right. 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 Um, you might like football. <laughs> Maybe you won't. <laughs> um, but it's not falling short of manhood if you don't like football or hunting. Manhood within a marriage entails the responsibilities of leadership, protection, and provision. Yep. Right. Yep. Now, those are the, those are the, 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 the skills that come with, a manhood in a marriage that you you would want to be aiming for, and that you know you'd want to teach your son mm-hmm. uh, if you're raising boys. So you do need to distinguish unbiblical stereotypes from what the Bible actually says. And sometimes what I hear critics criticizing, sometimes they'll criticize what the Bible says. I mean, that's a fact. But sometimes they're criticizing as unbiblical stereotypes that really aren't the, the teaching of God per se. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, no, and, and that's helpful, but one of the questions I, I, I do want to ask is with with all of these kind of views, um, this is one such view, is complementarianism in any danger?
1: Uh, no. I mean, th- I think people's faithfulness to the Word of God can wax and wane mm-hmm. in any given place or time. And, you know, in terms of what's going on in North American evangelicalism with complementarianism, that's going to wax or wane. right? But God's truth is going to Exist right, amen. Um, a lot of times, for some reason, first world Western people are so parochial, mm-hmm. and they feel like that their generation is the only generation. And <laughs> a lot of the things that are being questioned now just aren't questioned by the majority of believers from all times and all places. Yeah, um, this debate over complementarianism and egalitarianism didn't really exist before the twentieth century, and even then, in the twentieth century, it was mainly in the West. Um, so it's not, uh, this whole debate is actually a reaction to a false teaching coming from the culture in the form of feminism and individualism. Mm-hmm. And the church is now having to articulate what was always assumed and agreed upon before. Yeah. But uh, it's not a man-made doctrine. It's an ancient doctrine that's been recently challenged. And we've had to, you know, define exactly what we mean uh, or exactly what we understand the Bible to mm-hmm. be teaching
0: yeah absolutely. Um, so so why is egalitarianism so tempting to the church? Uh, why have we had to come and reassert what the Bible teaches about the role of men and women? Um, why just this kind of slow uh, well, at sometimes probably slower at times probably faster, but this uh, this embrace of egalitarianism?
1: Well, I think egalitarianism, I mean honestly, it does fit more with the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is more egalitarian. Yeah, there is no difference between male and female. There may be some obvious biological differences, but there's no um, dispositional differences between male and female. They're totally interchangeable in every social role in every situation. Right. Um, all you have to do to to see this is just watch watch the the art, the popular art that the culture produces. Um, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're making, they're telling these fantastical stories where men and women, even in combat, aren't different. I mean, you know, in other words, the obvious biological difference is they're papering over those things so that, um, they're just, everything has to be equal. And it's in doing that, they're ignoring biological reality and Mm -hmm. the social implications of those differences in biology. So, egalitarianism is really more attuned, in my view, to the spirit of the age. It's easier to hold that. Um, it's less embarrassing to hold that than, than what the Bible teaches, which is really out of step with that spirit of, of the age. Yeah,
0: no, and that's, I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I, uh, I've always thought it so funny, especially in the military, for instance, we've always had a distinction between what is physically required of men and women. And there's always been a clear distinction based on those two genders. For instance, you would have to do more push ups if you were male, fewer if you yeah. were female. And now, even recently, there's been kind of this reassessment of the way we even test the physical readiness of men and women. And one of the things they can't get past is that women, in almost every case, cannot rise to what a man is able to do. And we're talking just physically. Uh, it has nothing yeah. to do with with brains or desire. I mean, it's just quite literally yeah. their bodies physically will not function uh, the way men will.
1: There's a there's a there's a natural to there's but you have to think about this. God made men and women's bodies different, right? Yeah. Yep. And there's it's for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying, subduing the earth. But think about it. What makes us different so much in our bodies is the difference in male and female hormones. I mean, men right. have so much more testosterone and muscle mass than women it means they're much stronger so the social implications of those natural differences are who's going to be going out and protecting and providing the one with the bigger bone mass and the one with the thicker muscle mass that's who's going to do it because they're just naturally stronger that's a that's all a consequence of the sexual differences between male and female social consequences and so what what the commands in Scripture aren't arbitrary; they're fitting with nature as God designed it. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing in the modern world is people trying to paper over nature. They're denying right. design. They they don't want to recognize how God has made things. It's a part of Romans one, yeah, right? Suppressing the truth and and un- righteousness. It's just another piece of that. Yep.
0: Yeah. 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 It's the yeah the embrace of a lie. Certainly. Uh, okay, so thinking about the church and these distinctions between men and women, and I, I want to ask it this way. Obviously, I'm asking it in a way that I already know your answer, but do these distinctions mean that there are limitations for effective ministry that exist between men and women? For example, can a man be more effective in ministry simply because he's able to preach?
1: No, it just means you have a different ministry. Mm. Paul is really clear about this when it comes, when it comes to gift themes and how we're supposed to feel about each other. He says, you know, we're all one body the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason, any less a part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason, any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But there are many members. And then here's the thing. Many members in one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, we say something different. In other words, we recognize that we all have different giftings. God's placed the different parts of the body there for a reason. But you can't look at someone else's gifting and say, yours yours is better and yours is worse. Mm -hmm. You have to look at everyone's ministry that God's given them and say, this is needful for the body. So, we look at women's ministry and we think, we believe their ministry is needful for the body. It's good for the building up of the body. It's right. not the same thing as what the pastors are doing. Now, some women may be teaching children or, or other women, but they're not holding the office of pastor. They're not you know teaching the gathered assembly in that way, but they may have some teaching ministry. Who's going to look at that and go, oh, that's less important? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's not less important. Right. Um, it's it's crucial to the health of of the body. Yep. So I, I would never want to get into, the, we, we never want to get into the mode of, well, these are the important jobs and these are the these are the unimportant jobs. That's right. First Corinthians twelve is telling us not do don't do that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amen. No. And yeah, that's uh, such a helpful scripture to go to to make that that clarification. Uh, so uh, kind of on this topic, a recent conversation has emerged, and again, it's not a new one. It happens all the time. But just recently, there's been a conversation about whether a woman can preach in a church if she isn't serving in the role of pastor. So, for instance, maybe she's a guest preacher, and she's under the authority of the pastor. So, here's the question. Is pastoral office and function separable?
1: Well, the key text on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Mm. And uh, I would, to answer your question with a short answer, I'd say no, they go together. But right. this is the reason why. Because Paul says... I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Okay, so he says, let a woman be a disciple just like every other male and female in the congregation. Mm-hmm. They sit quiet, and they learn, they become disciples of the teaching of Jesus. But I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Now the teaching and the exercising of authority those aren't office right, right. Um, he's prohibiting two different functions there mm-hmm. now those two functions are absolutely critical to the office of pastor mm-hmm. if you can't teach or exercise authority you can't be a pastor right right okay you you have to be able to do those functions in order to be a pastor but he's not technically talking about an office mm-hmm. there he's talking about the functions that go with the, the office so when people say it's okay for women to stand before the gathered body and to preach, what they're saying is, is that they can take on these functions as so long as they don't hold the office. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that Paul prohibits the functions right before he even talks about the office, right. which comes right after this right. in chapter three. So it, that doesn't really, it doesn't really work. Right. Now, some people will say, well, well, he's just talking about teaching. He's not talking about preaching. You have to understand when Paul uses the word teach, he he means by that what you and I mean by preaching. Um, te- the gift of teaching is not just a data download. Right. Okay, the gift of and it's not talking about teaching geometry or you know math. It, teaching is talking about teaching the authoritative deposit, the apostolic word, and then you're exhorting people to obey it. It's inherently authoritative because you're not just giving data; you're exhorting people to obedience when you teach. Or what we call preach, okay, right. and so he's he's saying that that function and exercising authority is prohibited to, to to women within the church, and all of it relates to what we talked about before about the original divine design and how God orders the church. But it's the functions that are prohibited, first of all, not the offices.
0: Yeah, right. No, and thank you for making that distinction. That is really helpful for us to understand. And I think sometimes we do try to. Uh, and, and I think maybe what's happening here most of the time is trying to create an argument to validate or justify something that has happened, as opposed to just simply saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't have done that, or hey, maybe we've seen this wrongly. Um, and so I, I think it's so helpful to to look at the Bible and just look at what it plainly says. Um, so So thank you for helping us to do that. Okay, so our last question here, and I, I want this to kind of be an applicable question in our discussion. How can women effectively serve in their local church, and, and how can men come around them and encourage and equip them to do so?
1: Yeah, I mean, not, there's not time in the podcast to talk about all the possible ministries that <laughs> right. women could be fulfilling in, in a church. And, um, and I wouldn't want to shoehorn any given person into any given ministry, it's all going to be according to gifting. Mm-hmm. You know, I know in my own church, I mean, we rely heavily on, um, uh, one female in particular who does, you know, so much counseling for it. Yeah. And she's especially got her hands in women's lives that in, in a way that's, it, it frankly is, is serving the whole body and it's serving the pastors. We're relying on, on her. Um, we've got women doing other ministries. Um, some are, are, are on the street. Um, trying to do sidewalk counseling in front of the abortion clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got women who are um, you know, heavily involved in children's ministry. Um, I, I don't even, I, I don't know. I could go on and on here, but there's all kinds of ways that people minister uh, within the church that doesn't involve the specific tasks that are assigned to a pastor. And by the way, that's true for men too. That's right. Not every man is called to do the specific tasks that pastors are called to do so all of that all of that is crucial to remember now pastors you know we're supposed to be equipping the saints for the work of service right which means we're supposed to be trying to help all of the members be equipped and discipled so that they can god has called them to and that's no less true for women than it is for for the men that we we serve right
0: right yeah no and and that's really helpful um uh, for us and, and i mean you're exactly right my church looks different than your church and we have women in different roles. Um, and so I do, I just wanna I just want to make sure that we're always thinking, especially as pastors, ways that we can encourage women, and quite frankly, like you said, men, to be finding outlets to serve uh, effectively for the body. And, I, and again, I think it just goes back to what you were saying when we were talking about Paul and his illustration of the church as a body. Each of us will play a, a part um, that helps the whole to function as it is. And uh, every church is going to look different in terms of, of how that actually fleshes itself out. And so uh, just a kind of a final question there to get us to be thinking about these things well. But again, I do want to thank you for your time in helping us think through these things well and biblically. And I think this is a conversation that, yes, certainly um, should happen today, but it's one that should continue to happen for as long as we are serving in
1: our local churches. Hey, well, thanks for letting me come on and I appreciate your ministry.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, you can help others find and be encouraged by this content by leaving a rating and review wherever you're listening.